0: study through the book of Second Peter. We are in chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13. If anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand. we got new large print Bibles in, so if anyone needs a large print Bible, we have those too. So just let Kevin know, and he'll get one right to your seats. You can follow along with us. There's more uh, large print over here too, Kev. Okay. are right here, Kev. Oh everybody else? Listen, if you guys don't own a Bible, keep it, it's yours. God bless you. Read it. Use it. It's yours. Free of charge. Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10, we read, But the day of the Lord of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The title of my message this morning is, Objects May Be Closer Than They Appear. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time we can spend in Your Word. We thank You for the joy that it is to gather together as a church, to have great fellowship together, Lord, to to pray with one another, Lord, and to be able to be in Your Word, knowing, Holy Spirit, that You're going to teach us things that we need to hear. You're going to speak to our hearts things that we need to apply to our lives. You're going to give us not only information, but application, and we, th- we are thankful for that, Lord God. We pray your blessing upon our children downstairs, and Lord, as you speak through the teachers, that you would touch their hearts, the, the children's hearts, and they too at a young age would come to know you as Lord and Savior. And we do pray that for anyone here this morning that, that doesn't know you, Lord. They're not-, they're not born again today. Would you especially speak to their hearts, help them to see their need to come to you in repentance and put their faith and trust in you. Thank you for our time together, Lord. We pray your blessing upon it. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many of you may remember this scene from the movie Jurassic Park. You notice on that mirror, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. I think they really were pretty close. You know, they have a few other variations of that same thing. You know, I've seen this one. This one is objects in mirror are uglier than they appear. <laughs> I can relate to that one. How about this one? The New World Order is closer than it appears. And this one. Objects in mirror may be closer than they appear. It's a cemetery. It's like, uh-oh. Now, I'm not sure if they still have that on mirrors or not, but it was used to help to see if a car was coming alongside so you wouldn't get over it, you know, you wouldn't hit them. Today we have cameras and technologies actually to to keep your car in the lane to pull you back in there. But they built, built these mirrors to be convex so that it allows for a much wider angle of vision. In the same way... We as believers look around and we see things happening in our world that are coming up that tells us that Jesus may be closer, his return may be closer than it appears. But for those that don't know Christ, they see things differently. For us, it's not objects may be closer, objects are closer. Jesus' return is near. And as a result, we as believers were called to live with a much wider angle of vision. We're to see things happening around us in the light of Scripture, especially in light of what the Bible says about living in the last days. You see, the theme of Second Peter chapter 3 is to remind us of that, of that a wider angle of vision that we are to have. It is to let us hear what God's plan is for this earth, to see what God's plan is, and as believers, we should know what that plan is. We should be able to tell others around us, well, this is what the Bible says, how it's all going to end. I shared last week that the Bible has given us certain signs of the times that we are told to be looking for that would alert us to the fact that Jesus is coming back again. And what I find fascinating is that there's a greater number of signs closer in proximity than we've ever seen before. I think we can safely say the Lord's return is closer than it appears. Now to those that are excited about the Lord's return, it's the greatest news ever. For those that aren't so excited, I mean, it's like that T Rex chasing after you in your car. And for some, they just don't want to talk about it. It scares them. But God didn't give us prophecy to scare us, but to wake us up. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says this, and do this knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Listen, we talk about end times. Because the Lord talked about end times. We talk about end times because God's Word speaks of end times. Peter speaks specifically in chapter 3 of end times. If you remember from our study last week, we saw how there would be mockers, scoffers in the last days who would scoff at the thought of you saying, Jesus is going to come back. You know, I listened to uh, Jack Kibbs this last week. He said, you know, people think you're weird, so don't be afraid to share your faith because you think they might think you're weird. You're weird anyway to them. And it's true. So, so why are we escaping? But, but they scoff at the that. Oh, Jesus is coming. Oh, yeah, I've been saying that for years. But, you know, we saw how last week, how Peter said that they would deny the Lord's return. They would deny the history of the world. That there would be those that would deny that judgment was coming. But judgment is coming. Why hasn't it happened yet? Well, we left off with Peter telling us why it hasn't happened. In, in verse 9 of chapter 3, look at what it says there. Peter says, "The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." So right now, God is patiently holding back judgment, so that there would be many melted by His love and His grace that would be saved before judgment comes. Listen to Romans chapter two, verse four. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Right now we're living in a time of God's grace, but soon that time is going to be over. And it's for that reason that Peter gives to us this big picture. He lets us know that the time of our departure may be closer than it appears. Now brings us to verses 10 through 13 of Second Peter chapter three. If you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. Number one, the day of the Lord; number two, the day in which we live; and number three, the day in our future. First, the day of the Lord." Peter starts off in verse 10 with this phrase, "But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night." What does that mean when he says, "The day of the Lord? Well, according to the Scriptures, there are four different days spoken of. Not 24-hour periods, uh, uh, but time periods referred to as days that certain things are accomplished. Certain things will take place. First, there's the day of man. Then there is the day of Christ. Then there's the day of the Lord. And then finally, there's the day of God. We are currently living in a time called the day of man. This began in Genesis chapter 9. Verse 2, we read there that the Lord told Noah, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. A time where basically the Lord has given man to control over this earth. Now God ultimately is in control, but He has sovereignly given man the freedom to make decisions. And boy, have we messed it up royally <laughs> We've made a mess of this whole world system so that the result of the day of man is the day of a big mess. In fact, it's a time characterized by the words found in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's been man's problem throughout all the ages. Instead of seeking the Lord, what the Lord would have for us to do, man thinks he knows what's best and he thinks he's doing what is right in his own eyes. And that's why the world is in such need for the day of Christ. And that's the second day spoken of in in Scripture, the day of Christ. Let me give you a couple of verses to describe that. Philippians 1, verse 6 says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of Christ speaks of the day when Jesus is going to come back in the clouds. The trumpet will sound, and we as Christians will be caught up, raptured to be with the Lord. I think I can share this verse every Sunday and not get tired of it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will arise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. See, we as a church, we're looking for the Lord's return. We're we're listening for that trumpet to sound and for the Lord to say, come on up, time to come home. Now we know the church is, is called, is known as the Bride of Christ so that when the church is taken home to be with the Lord, there's going to be this great wedding reception, this great wedding feast that the Bible speaks of that will last for seven years. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, found in Revelation chapter 19. Now, that is taking place in heaven. Meanwhile, back down on earth, right after the rapture, that will mark the beginning of the day of the Lord, the third day, the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? I'm glad you asked. Well, Of all the prophecies in the Bible, there is none so detailed as this thing known as the Day of the Lord. It's used over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It's not a a term filled with a whole lot of joy or hope. It's a time when God is going to judge the world and punish the nations. Listen to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Well, for the Day of the Lord is at hand, it will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Listen to Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. So the day of the Lord begins with the seven-year great tribulation period. The Apostle Paul describes what that entails in the book of Revelation in chapters 6 through 19. It's the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. It's a time period of seven years of intense and cataclysmic events taking place on earth, which the Bible says, unless those days were shortened, no one would survive. Now, let me say that a Jewish day begins at 6 p.m. in the evening, so that day gets darker before it gets brighter. Well, the day of the Lord is going to start pretty dark. A dark time on the face of the earth, and it's going to get darker before it gets brighter. Because at the end of those seven years, Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth with His church, His bride, and He's going to set His feet down in Jerusalem. That is known as the second coming of Jesus Christ. Different than the first coming in the air. First in the air to meet His church, and then secondly on the ground to put an end to the Great Tribulation and the Battle of Armageddon taking place in the Valley of Megiddo a war to end all wars, fought in the valley of Megiddo, when Jesus returns, he will not stop in the clouds, this time he's going to go down to the earth, set up his kingdom upon the earth of righteousness, and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. That time period is known as the millennial reign of Christ. Instead of, instead of man running things, Jesus is going to run things, and he's going to do things right. A thousand years. Christ is going to reign, in which the Bible says that a wolf will lie down with a lamb, A child can play with serpents where there will be no more war, just peace. That time period is also known as the day of the Lord. So we're living during the day of man. The next Jesus will return in the clouds to meet his church and, and, and secondly on the ground to put an end to the great tribulation and the battle of Armageddon. He'll set up his kingdom on the earth where righteousness will rule for a thousand years, also known as the millennium. For a thousand years Christ will reign. And then after those thousand years we come to the fourth day, the day of God. So what is the day of God? It's eternity. It's eternity with God. Where Peter describes in verse 13 here as new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. So we have the day of man before up to the rapture of the church. We have the day of Christ after the rapture of the church in heaven. The day of the Lord to the destruction of the planet and then the day of God which is eternity with our God. Now in verse 10 we back up to where Peter says, the day of the Lord. Now you've heard of global warming, you haven't seen anything yet. Look at verse 10. Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now remember, the day of the Lord starts from the rapture all the way to the destruction of the planet. Here Peter says, it's going to come as a thief in the night. For those of you that have been a Christian for a while, maybe you remember back in the 70s, there was a movie that came out called The Thief in the Night. Kind of like the Left Behind series, only in a 70s fashion. They had the bell bottoms and the platform shoes and the crazy thing. And, and Keith Green sang a song that said, I wish it all been ready. Very 70s. Very funny if you look at it today. But listen, that video kept a lot of teenagers up at night. It made them think much like the Left Behind videos did. But the actual phrase here, a thief in the night, simply means that the day of the Lord will come at an unexpected time to non-believers. First Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us Jesus will come back as a thief in the night to those who are living in darkness. They're going to be caught unaware. Paul will tell us later in that same chapter in, in verses 4 and 5, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief you are all sons of light and sons of the day. So what Peter's doing here, if you remember, he's expanding on what he already said. And we looked at this last time. Look back now at verses 5 through 7 of Second Peter 3. He says, For this day, the day is the false teachers who deny the future catastrophe, he says, For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, And the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now putting this all together, we have Peter saying this. He's saying that just as the materials that were used in creation became an instrument for destruction in the past, that is the water and the flood, In like manner, the the matter that is currently on the earth today, the materials will become the recipe for its future destruction. In the past, it was water. In the future, it will be fire. Now, back to verse 10. Peter doesn't say there's a strong possibility this will happen. There's a good chance. We'll see how it goes. Maybe a probability. No. God's Word says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat, and it, will be burned up, and it will be burned up. In other words, God says, I promise, I'm going to rip away the heavens. I'm going to destroy the whole earth, and we're going to start all over again. Now, listen, since He is God, He can do that. And, and uh, since Scripture clearly states that He will do that, then why would we think that He wouldn't do that? If over one-fourth of our Bible is prophecy, and everything that God had said would come to pass at this point has come to pass, do you have any reason to think that, that the rest of the remainder of prophecies won't come to pass? And that's the point Peter's making. God's Word is God's Word. And if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And it happens, Peter says, with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. That word for great noise, great noise, is one word in the Greek, rosadon. And it's where we get the movie Rosadon and Godzilla from. And uh, No, that's Rodan, isn't it? But the word great noise is, is Rosadon, but Rosadon can be translated great winds of fire. Now, I know you'd think I'm kidding, but no, Jerry Lewis's song, great balls of fire. No, great, great winds of fire. The word elements here in the Greek is the word stoichion, and according to Strong's Concordance, it's defined as the element from which all things have come, the material causes of the universe. So the world is going to be destroyed by a great noise from the elements that make up the earth. It's going to melt with a fervent heat. So the things that God used to create this world, it's going to be used in its destruction. Now, we know that Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 tells us, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, science has verified this to be true. We have protons, we have neutrons, we have atoms we can't see, but we know that our world is made up of them. Now listen, because of Coulomb's law of electricity, it says that light changes repel. That means that the protons in an atom should repel against each other like a magnet when you put them the wrong way together, they repel against each other, they don't come together. But something keeps these elements from repelling from one another. Scientists can't figure that out. They can't understand what holds an atom together, so they've made up a name for it. We'll call it Atomic Glue. Yeah, that's it. That's what holds us together. Atomic Glue. Actually, they, they actually gave it a name, Gluons. We know, however, that it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, listen to what Colossians 1.16 and 17 says. For by Him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He holds all things together. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Once again, at his word, Jesus is holding everything together. But there will come a time when Jesus will let go. And with one gigantic boom, everything will be wiped out, obliterated, done away with in the day of the Lord. So God tells us in His Word, I'm going to bring, one day I'm going to bring this world to the end of its age. And when I decide to pack up the earth, I'm going to pack it up, roll back to heaven, I'll torch the earth. Everything's going to be gone. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm telling you ahead of time so you know the plan and you can live accordingly in godliness and holiness. And this brings us to point number two, the days in which we live. Now, one of the clearest signs that we see that prove to us that the days in which we live are the last days is the regathering of the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7 and 8, Isaiah spoke of a rebirth of Israel born as a nation in one day. Listen to this verse here, these verses. Before the birth pains even begin, Jerusalem gives birth to a son. Who has ever seen anything as strange as this? Who ever heard of such a thing? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? But by the time Jerusalem's birth pains begin, her child will be born. That so accurately describes what took place on May 14, 1948, when the Jews declared independence for Israel as a united and sovereign nation for the first time in 2,900 years. But you see, God has always had his hand on the nation of Israel. And according to God's word, Israel is really the timepiece of what's taking place in the last days. Bible tells us that in the last days all the nations of the earth are going to be gathered against Israel. Psalm eighty-eight, or rather eighty-three, verses three through four says this. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Ever since Israel became a nation, there have been countries wanting to destroy her, wanting to, to wipe her off the face of the map, as Iran had said. But again, God's hand is on the nation of Israel. I think of the Six-Day War fought in 1967, a miraculous, amazing victory. Fought between Israel against Arab neighbors, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, the nations of Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Algeria, and others also contributed troops and arms to the Arab forces. The Israeli military was outnumbered on all fronts and all services. Israel could fill the total strength of 264,000 soldiers. Facing them were 525,000 Arab soldiers. Israeli tanks were outnumbered by more than 3 to 1. 800 Israeli tanks faced 2,424 Arab tanks. The Israeli Air Force could fill 350 aircraft, outnumbered almost 3 to 1 by 939 Arab aircraft. And yet in six days... As a result of this attack, Israel captured the entire Sinai Desert, including the Gaza Strip, from Egypt, Judea, Samaria, and half of Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria. Instead of being annihilated, she had more than tripled her territory. The very fact that Israel survived was a miracle. But not just survived, but won a decisive victory with all those odds against her. The Arab losses was disastrous. Egypt lost more than 11,000, Jordan 6,000, and 1,000 for Syria, compared with only 700 for Israel. The Arab armies also suffered crippling losses of weaponry and equipment. The lopsidedness of the defeat demoralized both the Arab public and the political elite. A West Point general once remarked that though the U.S. military academy studies wars fought throughout the world, they do not study the Six-Day War because what concerns West Point is strategy and tactics, not miracles. (laughs) Then there was the Yom Kippur War, October 1973, fought from October 6 to October 26 by a coalition of Arab states, again led by Egypt and Syria against Israel as a way of wanting to recapture that part of the territories that they lost back in 67. But eventually... Arab forces were defeated again in Israel. Uh, there was no territorial changes. Why? Because God's word is God's word. And God's word says in Amos chapter 9, verse 15, I will firmly plant them in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, we know that Israel's enemies are not going to quit. We know that because the Bible tells us that in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. It's there that we're told that in the last days, this huge army from the north will decide to come down and attack Israel. And there in Ezekiel, it lists the names of the nations of Ezekiel at the time of Ezekiel that we see, and there are six of them. Translated to today, it would be Iran, Sudan, Libya, central Turkey, eastern Turkey, and Russia, or possibly the Stan's, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and maybe just a guy named Stan. Hello. <laughs> Interesting, a few years back there was an article in a Turkish paper with close ties to Turkey's President Erdogan exposing the regime's desire to form an army of Islam to attack and destroy the State of Israel. The Turkish article called on the fifty seven member nations of Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC, throughout the Muslim world to join forces together against Israel. The article said that if the member states of the OIC unite militarily, they would form the world's largest and most comprehensive army. Just this last Wednesday, I don't know if you saw this, this this article came out in the Jerusalem Post with this headline. It says, Iran-Russia-Turkey meetings in Iran aim to reshape the region. And the, uh, the, the, order, the headline says, Russia is at war in Ukraine and Turkey is demanding a new invasion of Syria. Meanwhile, Iran wants to U- the U.S. to leave Syria and use it to threaten Israel. The article goes on to say this, An unintended consequence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that it has now set the world on a new course. Iranian media has begun to speak of a new world order. This level of message discipline among Moscow, Tehran, and Ankara is unusual. They may have shared some interest in the past, but today their interests appear to be coinciding to an unprecedented degree. Another picture we see here of Russia, Iran, and Turkey all holding hands together. You know, God's Word said that this alliance is going to happen in the last days. It's happened. Now, I'm not saying this is going to be the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm just pointing out the similarities that we see going on and what God's Word says. Again, with that wider angle of view that we're seeing as we're looking for the Lord's return, I think we see things differently. We see things in the light of the Lord's return. We say, man, this could possibly be. Now let me say this. Whenever this army chooses to uh, strike, it's going to be in for one big surprise because the Lord's got a plan for them. Listen to what happens. Ezekiel 38, verse 21 and 22. I will call for a sword against God throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Five sixths of this invading army is going to be destroyed. Can you imagine? Just picture that jets just being bombarded with huge hailstorms just, just coming out of the sky. All this to say that when it comes to the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 and 39, it certainly seems like the nations are in place for this to happen. Whether that happens right before the rapture of the church or right after the rapture of the church, it's up to interpretation. But as I look around the world today, I see we're close. Objects are closer than when they appear. Jesus is coming soon for his church, then the Great Tribulation, then a thousand years of Christ ruling and reigning on the earth, and then, boom. The heavens will resolve, be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So knowing all of this, Peter then asked the question in verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons are you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now Peter's not asking the question, is that, so, so now what are we going to do? No. Uh, he's saying all these things will take place with absolute certainty. The earth is going to be dissolved. Therefore, we need to live our lives in holiness and godliness. Why? Because it's all going to burn. Let me ask you this. Knowing that all these things will be dissolved, is there something here on this earth that when it begins to burn, you would cry, Oh, no, not my cell phone. <laughs> not my Harley. Not my house. Not my car. Well, the car's okay. It's, it's disintegrating anyway, dissolving now. But anyway... But but Peter wants us to examine our lives to see if maybe we're too attached to some of our possessions. Listen, possessions are okay as long as possessions don't possess you. Here's a thought to think about. Whenever you find yourself maybe too attached to your possessions, all you need to do is drive out towards Bolivar, pull into the city dump when you get by there, get out of your car, take a really big whiff, and smell that's all your old stuff. All your old stuff. All those clothes you paid way too much money for, that cool new jacket that you bought, that new sofa, It's all your stuff. Then when you leave the dump, take a trip out to the salvage yard. Take a look at that car that you thought was so cool that you just had to have. Have you seen those, those flatbed trucks hauling cars where they're flat like a pancake and they have like, like 20 cars on the back of the truck? And then you look at it, and you go, oh, man, two, you know, one on top of each other, all smashed down. Listen, there was a time when someone looked at one of those cars and said, ooh, they kind of rubbed it, and said, oh, man, this is my car. They opened up the door, and they smelled the new car, smell. oh, I can't believe this is mine. And then years later, it's on the back of one of those trucks getting ready to be melted down for scrap metal. But when I had it, oh, what a car. Kids, no eating in this car, no food in this car, keep your feet off the upholstery, now those kids have moved away and the car is a pancake. I mean, think about it. God's Word says that thing that you really, really prize, someday, it's going to be gone. Why? Because it doesn't matter in the kingdom. We're not going to have cars in the kingdom. We're not going to need, need clothes in the kingdom. But there are those that completely go overboard and it's their life. They're consumed with their possessions. God says, ease up. It's all going to burn. It's nothing that important. When you look at it, from an eternal perspective. Here's what's important, Peter says in verse 11. Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? It's not a question. It's an exhortation. Knowing that we're living in the last days of human history, that that, that men are going to perish for all eternity, our lives as believers need to be marked by holy conduct and godliness. Is it? Holy conduct and godliness, does that describe your daily activities? Holy means to be set apart, keeping yourself away from sin. Godliness is the more positive way of looking at it. It's deliberately living to please God. So we're keeping ourselves away from sin and living deliberately to please God. Holiness and godliness. I think the reason the church is so weak today is because many Christians are playing with sin. Rather than boring it, they're resisting it, they're playing with it. They're enjoying it, even though they profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And the real tragedy is seen in life because when you're struggling like that, you have no peace, you have no joy. And worst of all, there's no fruit in your life. I'm told that in certain parts of the world, there's a tree which has been aptly named the Judas tree because of its deceitfulness. It has these beautiful red flowers that attract bees to it by the millions, but the nectar inside contains an opiate that is deadly to them, as evidenced by the piles of dead bees at the base of every Judas tree. What a perfect description of the deceitfulness and the danger of sin. looks good to the eye, but it's deadly to the soul. For that reason, we as, as last days believers need to rely on the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit to discern between good and evil to surrender our lives completely to the Lord and live lives of holiness and godliness. God says very clearly in the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 45, For I am the Lord your God, He says, You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. So the Lord says to us in these days in which we live, to live our lives, it needs to be holy, apart, separated from the world. Our our life should be like night and day compared to those that don't know the Lord. There should be a big difference. Now look at verse 12. Peter says, Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And that brings us to our final point, the day in our future. Look at verses 12 and 13. Again, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, here's the good news, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 12 here, it's an incredible verse because it has everything to do with our attitude and our activities as we look to the future for the coming day of God. We are to look for and expect that at any moment this could be our last day on earth, whether this is the day that Jesus comes to to take us home to him via the rapture or via death. And I would say this, if you're a a believer in a pre-trip rapture or a mid-trip or a post-trip, all of us should be, be living like Jesus could come back today and then peter says here not only should we expect the lord to return we can actually hasten his coming now some of the meanings of this word hasten means to hurry up to quicken to accelerate it means to have something brought swiftly that's the meaning of the word now is this saying that we can accelerate the coming of the lord I mean I thought we just read in verse nine that, that the Lord was long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, and all should come to repentance, and that's why it hasn't happened yet. Well, exactly. Yet you can accelerate his coming by telling more people about him, by seeing more people get saved. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter three, verse nineteen through twenty one. He's given us, he's preaching this, and he says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. See, Peter seemed to understand that Jesus wouldn't come back until uh, there, there were those saved. It's for that reason Peter felt that he was sent to preach. He was sent to preach so that the Lord would return even sooner. In essence, Peter is saying, hurry up and repent so that the times of refreshment can come so Jesus can come back. And I would say the same thing today. If you haven't repented of your sin, hurry up and repent so Jesus can come back. We're waiting on you. We know that it also says in Acts chapter 2 that the Lord added to the church daily those that would be saved. Listen, there is a, a book in heaven a book of life, it's called, and names are written in it. All those that have repented of their sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ, their names are found written in that book of life. So we are in a waiting period for, the, for that last person who's not saved to get saved and get their name written in that book of life. Maybe we're waiting for you. Maybe we're waiting on your next-door neighbor. Maybe we're waiting on your coworker. Someone needs to go talk to them so we can get out of here. So as we share our faith, we have the ability to hasten the coming day of God. It's an attitude that Peter wants us to adopt towards the unsaved. Encouraging people to make a decision for Christ. Fulfilling the purpose why we are still here. Yes, there is a day in the future that is going to be horrific. Catastrophic. The heavens will be dissolved. Be on fire. The elements will melt with fervent heat. But we're not looking forward to that day. Peter's not eager, nor should we be, to see massive destruction and death that will be a part of the future scenario. Peter's thinking, we should be thinking, what comes after that? We look forward according to his promises, Peter says in verse 13, for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That in and of itself should settle our hearts. It should give us a peace to these difficult days in which we're living in? You know, it's not so unlike John when he wrote in the book of Revelation. If you've read uh, the book, you know that in chapter 10, an angel gave him a book to eat. He said, here, put this in your mouth and eat it. And this book was basically future things that were going to happen, judgments that were going to come to this earth. So John ate it. But he said, it was sweet to my taste, but bitter when I swallowed it. It was bitter because the day of the Lord, the judgments that were coming first. And it was sweet because of the Lord who will return after all that that will bring is both bitter and sweet. God said to Isaiah, on Isaiah 65:17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. All the horrible stuff that's going to happen to planet earth will be forgotten. New heaven, new earth will be Reborn. Listen, God did such an amazing job on the first one. Can you imagine how amazing the second one is going to be? You know, one of the the first byproducts every believer enjoys when they first come to Christ is that of peace. Peace with God. There's a peace that passes all understanding to the person that's born again. And no matter what's going on in this world, because you know the one who created it, and he calls you his own, he settles our heart. He gives us this peace. And when you and I are able to see how the Scripture predicts certain events and those events have come to pass, then we logically should say that everything else He said that's going to happen will happen, just as He said. And that gives me a peace. It stabilizes my thinking. It keeps me from falling into doctrinal instability, losing confidence in the truth. You know, it's like driving down the road with our new technology. It keeps me on the road. Pulls that steering wheel back, back where it needs to be. Folks, look in the mirror. Objects are closer than they appear. The universe is winding down and you and I with it. We're not to live for this world. We have a better one ahead and we should live with that in mind because that will motivate us and, and the scripture will be a compass that, that keeps us firmly in our lane. Final question as we close. If Jesus were to return today, would you be ready to go with him? Would you go up in the rapture of the church? If you've come to him in repentance, ask him to forgive you of your sin, you betcha. You'll come up and then the day of the Lord will begin. If not, you're going to be left behind going, whoa, I heard that pastor talk about the day of the Lord. I'm going to face that. It's going to be too late. So I would encourage you, the Bible says now is the time for salvation. Today is the day to give your life to Christ. If you're not giving your life to Christ, I encourage you to do so this morning. I want to give you that opportunity. Uh, Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, you've given us this whole plan of how the end of the world and the new world and eternity is going to come to pass, Lord. Not to scare us, not to frighten us, but as Christians, to give us the hope and to know that we have a future and you have it all planned out. But Lord, to those that don't know you, this can be very frightening. Because there's a danger that's, that's ahead for them. Things they have to face are going to be horrible. And Father, I know that's not your desire. Your word says you're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So Father, I pray right now, if there's anyone here in this room that has not surrendered their heart and life to you, they're not born again today, they're not saved, they've not made that commitment to follow you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, help them to make that commitment today. Help them to say to you today that I want to follow you with my whole heart, strength, and mind. While their heads are bound and their eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? It's just between you and the Lord. You want to raise your hand and say I want to follow Christ wholeheartedly. I want to give my life to Him. If that's your desire, just raise your hand so I can see it. Anybody at all? Lord, thank you, Lord. We await Your coming, Maranatha, Lord. Lord, come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Saul Stanley, do one last.